Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. What was the biggest danger facing the early church in the book of Acts? I would suggest to you that it was doctrinal error and disunity. Doctrinal error and disunity. And what is the biggest danger that faces the modern day church today in 2020? I would suggest to you that it's the same thing. It's doctrinal error and disunity. Where we're at in our study, I think this is our 42nd message going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, where we find ourselves is is Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. That was recounted in Acts 13 and Acts 14, and and, uh, we studied that for several weeks. And, And then in the next chapter, Acts 16, so that was Acts 13 and 14, In Acts 16, they're going to embark upon uh, their next missionary journeys, taking the gospel to places that were yet unreached with the gospel. But tucked in between Acts 13 and 14, that first journey, and Acts 16, that second journey, was Acts 15. I mentioned to you last week, if you have a, I mentioned to you that some have called this the Magna Carta of the early church, of the Christian church. They were dealing with some doctrinal error that was going to forever set the direction and change the course or keep right the course of the church of Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to turn there, we're going to be in Acts 15 again today. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And Acts 15, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, we invite you to use that. If you're, uh, if you're reading on a tablet or a, uh, a phone or a device, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. If you'd like to follow along, and at times we'll read aloud together. We'll be in Acts in chapter number 15. And in Acts 15, what happened at the end of Acts 14, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul and Barnabas got back to their church at Antioch after their whole journey. I think, do we have that map there back there, guys, that, that map? Um, you can see they started in Antioch right above Syria, the bo- kind of the bottom right corner there. Right above Syria is Antioch, and the number one, they sailed over to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. They, they went through there, and then they sailed up over and into that region in Galatia, and they went on seven, eight, nine. They got back on a boat and went back to Antioch. So this is where we are. We're back in Antioch in Acts 15. Uh, they had done, they've gone through their first missionary journey. And, and what happened in Antioch, when they got there, they found out there were some false teachers that had come in and began to teach some doctrinal error. We looked at that last week. Really, what all religions of the world come down to are two categories, do or done. Do you have to do something to earn salvation and to earn heaven and to earn eternal life? And are you on a constant journey to do more for God so that you'll be accepted by God? Or do you believe that the work, the saving work that we need has been done, completely finished by Jesus Christ at Calvary, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, what we call the good news or the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus, he answered the question when he said it, is finished. It's done. And Paul was preaching a done gospel to all of these places on his journey, Paul and Barnabas were, but they got back to Antioch and somebody had slipped in with a do gospel. And so we dealt with that last Sunday and it's where we find ourselves. We need to understand the context, one where they were, but also 
this church in Antioch and really all of those churches, for the first time, the church is exploding with Gentile converts. This is very important for where we're going to find ourselves in our passage today. That doesn't mean a lot to us. We don't use that terminology in 2020. Well, he's a Gentile. He's what, but a Gentile, what a Gentile was, was anyone that was not a Jew. In this day, in this time, there were basically three races, if you will, or three cultural divisions of people. There were the Jews. And the Jews that uh, started with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, God promised, made his covenant to Abraham, the, the nation of Israel. And you had the Jews and much of the Old Testament written and written by and for and to Jews. Now, doesn't mean it's not for those of us that are not non-Jews, but it was to the nation of Israel. And much of the Old Testament is the history of the nation of Israel several thousand years ago. And so you had the Jews. And then you had everybody else, which were the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles did not mix. They had different cultures. They had different traditions. They had different ways of life. They had different ways of worship. They had different gods that they worshiped. They had different practices. They had different, all of these, they were very different. And, and not only were they different, but they did not like each other. They looked down one upon the other. And, 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 and so, and then you had, in the middle of that, you had Jews and Gentiles. There was a third, which were called the Samaritans. The Samaritans were known as, they were derogatorily called half-breeds. They were the children, when the Jews were taken into captivity, some of the Jews intermarried with Gentiles, and their children were called Samaritans. You had Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews looked down upon them. Again, the Samaritans, they had some Jewish tradition, some Jewish culture. They had some Jewish beliefs in their, in their, in their lineage, but they also had a different culture and a different worship, and different, they had a different temple. They had all this, and so you had the Samaritans. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan was such a big deal. It was so revolutionary to their thought. Jesus basically saying the priest and the Levite, the respected Jews, are not, were not to be respected in that story. The one that was fulfilling God's plan was the half-breed, the Samaritan. And, and to this day, we view, we think of Samaritans in a positive light. I was born at Good Samaritan Hospital in Northern California. We name hospitals after the Good Samaritan. We, we think of it, but they did not think of it in a positive light. Well, what has happened since Jesus came? There, now the Bible says in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There weren't three groups of people in the gospel. There was one group of people, Christians. Those that had trusted Christ as Savior, it didn't matter the cultural divisions. It didn't matter the, the, the background, the traditions, what, how they had grown up. It didn't matter where they were born, the nation they were from. The, the church was full of now they've been reached. Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles have all been reached, and the gospel is exploding among Gentiles. This was a very big deal. And so we have the church thriving, the gospel going forth in amazing ways, but a group of Jews were demanding uniformity. I want you to see it. We saw it last week. Verse 1, by way of review, chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, those that were saved, Jews and Gentiles in the church in Antioch, and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, Moses was the one that God had given the law to. The Jews basically worshipped the law. That was, in their, that was the Pharisees. That was what they, and, and they said, you Gentiles, you've got to look like us. You've got to do what we do. You've got to eat what we eat. You've got to dress like we dress. 
unless you are circumcised, and that was a bigger picture. Yes, that was a physical thing, but it was a bigger, uh, a bigger deal of the accepting of, I am going to live, try to live according, nobody can live according to the Old Testament law, but I'm going to try to live according to the Old Testament law. These Jews were sneaking into the Jew and Gentile church and saying, You've, they were, we call them legalists. They were adding works to salvation. By the way, legalists don't only add works to salvation. Legalism can also be those that add works um, for our sanctification, meaning we think we can somehow earn more of God's love, more of God's favor, if you will. I can make him love me more by the way that I dress, the things that I do, the, and those things. And we'll see that, I believe, in verse 5. Here we see legalism added to salvation. I believe in verse 5 we see it added afterwards. But they're telling them they need to submit to our traditions, our teachings, our preferences, if not, you, you must not really know God or love God like we do. Well, this was very, this was antithetical to the gospel. It was very contrary to what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching and really what all, Peter, all of the apostles have been preaching and teaching. Verse 5, notice what it says. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. I personally believe these were saved people that had grown up in the Jewish religion. Saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Some were saying, unless you, unless you do these external things, this uniformity, look exactly like us, do everything the way that we do it, you can't be saved. And then I believe there were some here saying, unless you do everything the way that we do it, you can't be a part of our church. Uniformity. They were demanding uniformity. So, as we saw last week, in the first 19 verses, Paul and Barnabas, uh, the church decided, we got to get this settled. So you remember where they went? They went down to Jerusalem. They had the council at Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. And Peter stood up, an apostle to the Jews, very respected by the Jews. Peter stood up and said, it's, it's by grace through faith alone. It's not of works. It's not of the law. Quit talking about that. Peter talked about the past. He said, we, I dealt with this 10 years ago when I preached to Cornelius, that Roman soldier, and I saw, I saw the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. Peter appealed to the past. Paul and Barnabas then stood up, and the council at Jerusalem was all of the religious leaders uh, of that day, kind of where the headquarters of the church were. They were all there, and Peter stands up and talks about the past. Paul and Barnabas stood up, talked about the present. They said, here's what just happened on our missionary journey, and here's Titus. We want you to see this Jewish, this Greek, not Jewish, this Greek believer. God changed his life, and he didn't do any of the Jewish rituals. And then James, a very respected Jew and in in, in leader in the Jerusalem church, James, he appealed to the future. He said, going back to Amos, Amos prophesied that Gentiles would be saved, and there would be a great number of them in the millennial kingdom. So we have past, present, future. God is agreeing with all of this. That was last week. They're at the, the Jerusalem Council, and they go through all of that. So, last week where we left it off was verse number 19, and it says, Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. After everybody hearing everything, after all of them hearing that, James says, here's the final decision. The Gentiles don't have to, it's not about uniformity. The Gentiles don't have to do everything that the Jews have always done for all of these years. This is not a requirement. Stop troubling the Gentiles, making them uh, adhere to all of the ways that your family grew up, all of the ways, all of the food that your family ate, all of the rituals and ceremonies that your family is used to. That is not a requirement for them to be good Christians. Stop telling them that. Get rid of legalism. Stop it. That was the sentence. 
And uh, in this passage, it's awesome. We'll read a couple of verses here. And I'm going to read, we'll, we'll read a couple of verses. I'll give you some thoughts. We'll read the entire passage. And then I'm going I'm I'm to give you the answers to three important questions that their letter answered. So what happened? James gives the sentence at the council at Jerusalem. Then they decide, James says, let's write this in a letter. Let's write it down because we don't want the, the, the false teachers there or the others there to think, well, maybe Paul and Barnabas, you know, maybe they didn't get the whole story. Maybe they're just kind of shading it with a little bias when they come back to us. So let's write it down in a letter and let's go a step farther. Let's send a couple people with them to take the letter so that it's not just Paul and Barnabas saying it's by grace through faith alone. They're going to have a letter from us and they're going to have a couple Jewish believers. The Bible talks about leaders in the church there that are going to come and share with them, hey, we've decided this once and for all. That's the passage we're going to study today is them traveling back to Antioch, delivering the letter, and we're going to read the letter that they wrote. And then we're going to, we're, I'm going to give you, th their letter answers three vital questions uh, for us today and for the church today today. Notice in verse number 20. So he gives the sentence, verse 20. He said, my sentence is verse 19. We trouble not them. Verse 20, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. This is interesting. We need, the sentence is, they don't have to do everything we do. They, we don't need uniformity. But here's what Paul, uh, James said, we do need unity. And the message this morning is uniform, unity, not uniformity. We do need unity, and here's the reality. There are some Jewish believers that some of their personal standards, if you will, some of their personal preferences are so strong that it is going to split that church in half if the Gentiles don't understand these things and give a little in limiting their liberty for the sake of unity. That's what happens here. He said, and so he says, let's write a letter and say they need to abstain from pollutions of idols. What that means, he explains it later on in the passage. When they would, there would people would offer at the temple, they would offer meat to idols. Well, of course, an idol is a statue. It can't eat the meat, so the meat is still there when they're done offering it. And they would say, there were some people that would say, hey, that meat's still good. You know, they would, they would sell it at the temple. They would sell it, and people could eat it. And the Gentiles had no problem with this because to them, it was just some steak. It's not a big deal. I'm not worried, but for the Jews who their history had been fraught with idol worship and sometimes their fathers had worshiped idols in wrong countries and then God had broken the idols down and God had said, thou shalt have no other gods before me and love the Lord thy God. For them, anything associated with idols was a big deal because of how they were brought up, because of the teachings of scripture. It was a big deal. For the Gentiles, it wasn't really a big deal. And so James says, we've got to deal with that. They can't do anything. We're gonna ask the Gentiles, even though it's not a problem for them to eat the meat, they need to just stay away from that because it's going to bring some disunity to the, to the local church. Verse number uh, 20, it says, and from fornication. Fornication was rampant among Gentiles. It was also a part of much temple worship. There were, there were temple prostitutes and other things. And they said to the Gentiles, this is a scriptural thing. Make sure that you're, you're not getting involved in this as new Christians. You were brought up with a different worldview. What was, and by the way, we're now ministering to a generation that's brought up with a different worldview. What 50 or 60 or 70 years ago in American culture would have seemed like that would only be something that the base of society would evolve themselves in is now some of that is very accepted as just normal. 
Well, that's just what you do. And, 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 and the numbers of people that, well, we, you know, I'm going to try that, that girl out for a while, live with her for a little bit, and then I'll move over to that one and go over there. And I have all these multiple partners, and we're all friends and, and friends with benefits. And all, all of this stuff that we would have never thought of 50 or 60 years ago in American culture is very widespread, especially for those that didn't grow up with a knowledge of Scripture. Well, that was similar to the Gentiles. They didn't grow up with any of that. And so for them, stuff that, and he said, make sure your stuff that you might not understand is against Scripture. Make sure you stay away from it. Then he said in verse 20, and from things strangled and from blood. That's talking about meat preparation. The Jews could not eat uh, uh, an animal that had been killed by strangulation. It was in the Old Testament dietary laws. Now, the Gentiles were not bound to the Old Testament dietary laws. But James says, this is going to cause a big problem in the church. Why? The church ate together constantly. They were in each other's homes constantly. When they gathered for the Lord's Supper, they would often have a feast together. And basically, James says, if we don't give them some guidelines, they're going to split the church over the church potluck. That's what he said. This church is going to be split and the gospel witness is going to be weakened because of the church potluck. Because the Gentiles are going to have no problem bringing some things that were forbidden to be eaten by Jews. And they're going to bring that and they're going to invite Jewish Christians because they're all a part of the same family over to their house. And they're going to have bacon wrapped filet mignon with a side of lobster tail and some drawn butter. And they're going to think it's great. And the Jews are going to be appalled and say, I can't walk into that house. I can't touch that. I can't have that. No way. And James says, let's ask them to limit their liberty in what they eat so that the church can function in beautiful unity. Now, we're not going to place undue burdens on the Gentile believers on top of salvation, but we are going to ask them to understand there are some really strong-held personal opinions and personal preferences between these groups of believers. And for the sake of unity, they each need to give a little. They need to understand they're coming from different backgrounds and out of love. Love, they need to go ahead and say, I'm not going to do that which would offend my brother or sister because the need of the gospel is more important than my need of bacon. That, that's what it says here. And so he says, and he, he tells them here, these last two are dietary laws. And, 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 and again, the simple fact of what type of meat they ate and the way it was prepared threatened to create a church split and take away the unity that God's church should display. So they asked them, let's ask the Gentiles to respectfully limit their liberty for the sake of unity in the gospel. Let me summarize those three verses for you. Great principles for us today. Verse number 19, the first principle is this, number one, as those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. As those of us under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. Well, if you're going to be a part of this church, you must do, that doesn't mean there are not guidelines, that does not mean there are not institutional standards in our church, but to be a part of our group of believers, and if it's not in Scripture, we should not be adding burdens to people on those things that are not outlined in Scripture. Number two, because we are under grace, we should gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Because we are under grace, we should gladly, Ray, we were having a conversation about this this week, talking about restricting our freedom because we're under grace. I don't have a problem with this in my life, but I know it would be a stumbling block to someone else, so I am willing to limit my liberty in order not to create discord or disunity within the body of Christ because the gospel witness is more important than my personal preference in that area that, that I might differ from a, another good brother or sister in Christ with. This is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. 
It won't be uniformity. We're not, all of our homes are not gonna look exactly the same. All of us are not gonna get the exact same haircut. We're all not gonna dress exactly the same. Now, there are biblical principles of modesty and there are some, some guidelines I think we should follow that we're not uh, doing things that would bring uh, a sensual or ungodly attention to our bodies. And there are some biblical principles of those things, but you and I, some of you are gonna be comfortable wearing jeans and a t-shirt and others of you are gonna be more comfortable in a suit and a tie and others are gonna be comfortable you go to work in, in shorts and a tank top and others might whatever and there are going to be some differences we're not going to it's not going to be uniformity but the goal is unity it won't be uniformity of practice in every home every church every country they deal with it here they talk about it but it will be a desire and passion and commitment for to unity with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who may handle some things a little differently than we do if you want to jot it in your notes I'm not going to go there right now Paul addresses this beautifully in Romans 14 you can this week go and read Romans 14. He addresses it beautifully. And he says in that chapter, he said, if there are people who have liberty in an area that is not against Scripture, they have liberty in an area you don't have, don't judge them. And if there are people that don't have liberty in an area that you do, or vice versa, don't condemn them. Don't condemn people, well, well, I can't believe they would do that. I would never do that. Don't condemn a brother. Now, I'm not talking, this is not unbiblical compromise. This doesn't mean everybody does whatever they want. The Bible doesn't matter. We're talking about, did you, do you understand there are some areas of preferential practice in our lives? There are certain things that you might do in your house that I'm not comfortable doing in my house, and it doesn't violate any principle of Scripture. Do we understand that? He said, when that's the case, don't condemn another brother, don't judge another brother in those areas. We're not looking for uniformity. We're looking for gospel-centered unity. We're looking for the church to be together so that the gospel can go out in power. If, if others don't hold the same standard you do, Paul said, in certain preferential issues, don't condemn them. What is he saying in this passage and in that? Church family, get rid of pride. Choose love. Choose deference. Choose unity. I encourage you to read that beautiful chapter. So that is the summary of their message. Now let's read when they come to Antioch to read it. I'll read this passage and I'll give you the, the questions, the answers, and we'll be done. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The Here's the letter. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto, look at the next word, unto the what church? Unto the, this was huge. We send greeting from Jerusalem to the brethren. Who are they talking to? A lot of Gentiles. We welcome you into the family. You're one of us. You're not, a, you're not a lower class Christian because you're not Jewish. To the brethren. This, they're letting know early on, we're all on the same team. We have a unity, Jew and Gentile, and, and save Samaritan. To, we send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Hey, you're, you're brethren. You're one of us. Verse 24, for as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us, some people came out of Jerusalem, they troubled you with words, subverting your souls, doctrinal error, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we, have, we gave no such commandment. James, their letter makes it clear. Some people came purporting to be from the church of Jerusalem. We did not tell them you had to follow the Jewish law. That's a bunch of garbage. Notice verse 25. It seemed good unto us being assembled with what church? Were the next two words? With what? With one accord. Unity. 
to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. In case you think someone forged a letter, these guys are coming to give you a testimony. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost, I like that, and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. We don't want you to trying to obey all 613 Old Testament laws. But we do want you to understand, if you're not willing to understand that in your culture, there's some things you shouldn't do, or else it's going to divide your church, and, and it's going to weaken your gospel witness in places where the law of Moses is read every week. If you don't understand that, then it's going it's to affect it. So we're going to ask you this. Here's what we're asking you in verse 29. That you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. That's the letter. Can we just ask you, be careful at the potlucks. Really, I mean, it, the church is bigger than that. Can, can you adjust your diet a little bit for the sake of unity in the church? That's really what the letter said. Verse number uh, verse number uh, 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. They stood up. You have to imagine probably the, 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 the believers, they were scared because what, what's going to happen? Paul and Barnabas, they didn't have FaceTime. They didn't have text messages. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have any of that stuff. Nobody got word back to them. So they're like, I wonder what's going to happen. I mean, can you imagine? We had to do all those rules. I got to line up an appointment with the doctor. I got, we got all this stuff we got to do if they, if, they, if they err on the side of the Jews. Man, this is, the, and the doctors probably we're excited. It's going to be a busy month, and, and uh, we're going to have to do all these things. And they're wondering what's going to happen, and they come. And when they had delivered the epistle, verse 31, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What a beautiful picture. The church was facing doctrinal error and disunity. And the doctrinal error was addressed, and the disunity was addressed. We don't need uniformity. Jews, your house is going to look a little different than Gentiles. Your, your wall decorations are going to be a little di bit different. Your refrigerator is going to be stocked a little bit differently. That's okay. The gospel's bigger than your refrigerator. But Gentiles, you need to understand some of these things that you have freedom in that doesn't bother you because of the way you were brought up, it really bothers them. Can you go ahead and show some Christian love and deference for the sake of unity? Not uniformity. You can still, you don't have to do everything they're doing, but we're just asking you for the sake of unity, would you limit your liberty a little bit? I'm going to give you three answers to questions from this passage. Number one, what brings true unity? What brings true unity? And I think you can see it here. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not our traditions that bring unity. It's not our upbringings. It's not our shared interests. It's not our similar backgrounds. These believers did not have any of that in common, yet they had beautiful unity. Why? Because Christ was bigger than all of their traditions. Christ was bigger than their upbringings. Christ was bigger than their differing interests and their drastically different backgrounds and cultures. Christ, the gospel of Christ, Jews and Gentiles that never would have associated with each other are now beautifully worshiping together and getting the gospel out 
through their church. Why? Because Jesus overcomes all of those things, and true unity only comes through Christ. I don't know if you figured it out. I'm sure you have. Right now in 2020, in, in a lot of ways, and in a lot of pockets in our country, our nation is divided. If you watched the debate on Tuesday night, you figured out there's some division. If you watched the commentary after the debate, and I don't talk about politics a whole lot, but it's a part of our, our weekly life, and we're right in the midst of an election season. It's not real hard if you jump on social media to figure out we are divided in a bunch of areas. People are fighting against the government, and citizens hateful of those, some citizens uh, that are sworn to serve and protect them. Americans gleeful that the president of our nation contracted COVID. Hate groups stirring up riots and anarchy and threats. Pastors criticizing other like-minded pastors because of petty differences. Christians who won't talk to other Christians because of pride and personality conflicts. Why do we have that division in, in our nation? And why do we have that division even in our churches and even in, in our homes? Why do we have that division in Christianity some? And again, I'm not saying it's every Christian and it's every church, but there are those. Why do we have that? The answer is because we have lost sight of the power of the gospel. Our churches have lost sight of the power of the gospel. Our nation, as a, as, a, as a nation, we have lost sight. Many don't even know Jesus Christ and have never even heard the story of the gospel. Many in our nation have never met Christ and, and don't realize that he can bring the peace and the healing that we're trying to find in, in, in maybe this election or in that, that senator or that, that governor or that president and trying to find that unity, that peace, that healing. It's Jesus that will bring us together. We've forgotten how much we've been forgiven, so we can't or won't forgive the comparatively minuscule ways in which others have hurt us. The believers in Acts 15 did not find uniformity, but they did find unity. By the way, they didn't demand uniformity, but they found a beautiful unity. How? They stopped looking at the things that were different about them, and they got their eyes back on the teachings of Christ. How did they get in danger of that disunity and that doctrinal error. Some false teachers, and I believe some saved Pharisees, started getting their eyes on their differences within the church and their eyes off the teachings of Christ. When a church keeps its focus on Christ and his gospel and his word, a beautiful unity comes. Because it's bigger than our differences. It's bigger than what college we graduated from. It's bigger than what state we were born in. It's bigger than what our first language was. It's bigger than our upbringing. It's bigger than what age we found Jesus Christ at. And we're not talking again about unity at all costs. We're talking about a beautiful biblical unity that they fought for at the council at Jerusalem and that they came and gave. What, what, does, what brings true unity, the gospel? Number two, the second answer that we need to find, what does unity look like? What does unity look like? This is a long sentence, so I'll read it to you. Unity looks like a multi-generational, multinational, multitude of believers humbly serving God and lovingly serving one another, willing to limit their liberty, not forcing every one of their personal preferences on every other Christian as they all seek to follow Christ and his word. True unity looks like a bunch of different people rallied around the same cause. It doesn't always look the same. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I be free from all men, I have liberty, I'm not bound to anybody, I have liberty in Christ, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. I'm willing to defer to others so that I can preach the gospel to them. What, how does he describe it? Unto the Jews I became as a what, church? As a... 
as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I became as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, Gentiles, as, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as what? Weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. What is Paul saying? Some would say that sounds a whole lot like compromise. Like he's just a chameleon. He, he, by the way, Paul never compromised on any fundamental of the faith. Paul never compromised on the, on the gospel of Christ, on the, on the truths of scripture, on salvation by grace through faith. But in the areas where he could have have demanded uniformity, and if he had, he would have lost his gospel witness with that group. Paul said, I don't need, I can limit my liberty so that we can have unity. I don't need to cast judgment upon you. You're, you're a Jew, you're under the law, you're without the law, you're weak. I can, I can relate to you and put aside some of my personal preferences. Why? Not for my comfort, for your salvation. Amen. That's what unity looks like. That's what gospel-centered unity in the, the heart of a believer looks like. And here, the Jews are saying, they need to look like us. They need to do what we do. They need to do all of these things. And Paul said, that's not. And the Council of Jerusalem said, no. So what does unity in the gospel look like around the world? Because of our different cultures, our varied experiences, and a variety of other factors, unity around the gospel is going to look a little different from life to life, from home to home from church to church, you walk, you walk into any church, and there are some, you, hopefully if you're a visitor here and you've grown up in church, you've probably sung Grace Life Faithfulness before, but guess what? This church probably feels and looks, and there's a little bit, some differences in the, in structure serve, the service structure than the church you, you, you attended before. It's going to look a little different from church to church and state to state and nation to nation. How many of you have traveled and attended church in a rural farm town or some small, small town America town somewhere in, in rural America? How many of you have? I have. If you were to go to a little country church today, they'd be getting out right now, getting ready for dinner on the grounds right about now. But, but if you were to go to a little country church in the hills of Tennessee today, you probably wouldn't be shocked to find a banjo, a mandolin, a harmonica, some overalls, and a whole lot of pickup trucks out in the parking lot with hay bales and, and horse feed in the back of them. Am I right? I was just in Montana. I think they have more pickup trucks than they have citizens in Montana. I've been here in Orange County at Liberty Baptist Church for five years. I don't think we've ever had anybody play a banjo on the platform. I don't even know what a mandolin is. Pretty sure there's no store that sells overalls in Orange County. And if you go in our parking lot, you're much more likely to find a Tesla or an electric car than you are a pickup truck with a hay bale in the back. So who's right? Who's doing it right? Who loves God more? The, 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 the church with the bluegrass music or the church today that might have been a little more, I don't know what you would call that, sober or, or meditative or worshipful. or I don't even know what, what the word would be, but it definitely wasn't bluegrass, Hadley. What we did today wasn't bluegrass. So, so what church is right? Who is God more pleased with? Which one is God more accepting of? Which church accomplished more for eternity? You know what the answer is? In God's sight, yes. I'm not talking, please understand, I'm not talking about compromising truth. 
It's not what I'm talking about. Don't, don't read into my words. We ought to take strong stands on truth, but culturally and generationally and, and regionally and, and depending on our location, some things change so that we can reach that context with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get so caught up in trying to impose our culture and our comfort levels on others that we lose sight of the gospel and the ability to share the gospel with them. I want to say that statement again. We get so caught up on trying trying to impose our culture and our comfort levels on other people, even within the church, that we lose sight of the gospel and our ability to share the gospel with them. Let me illustrate. Max, Carol, we went to Tanzania, about 35 from our church. You were in that, that trip last summer. We went to Tanzania for, for about uh, uh, two weeks, East Africa. We had the privilege toward the end of our trip of going to a building dedication of a little church, a brand new church plant in a, in a hills, the hills of Tanzania somewhere, a little village. The pastor, somebody had, they had made, I believe, if I remember correctly, they made all the, their own bricks. The church members made their own bricks. The pastor with a few men of the church, they built the church building themselves, and we were going to be there for their first service. And we came and brought our team. We were going to celebrate with them there in the hills outside of Morogoro. And we had a small service. I spoke to them a little bit, and, and some in our group sang to them. And I want to play you a 30-second clip of one of their congregational songs before we got up to speak. Do we have that ready with the audio there? Let's wait a second. First of all, they don't even have windows or doors. What kind of church is that? No lights, no electricity, no screens, no sound equipment. Can that church building even be of any use for the sake of the gospel? That church building would never work in America. Nobody would go to that church. Now let's get to their song service. Did that sound like anything we did this morning? Who's going to be the lady tonight at 5 o'clock? Who's that going to be? Who volunteers next Sunday? They start doing that. I was like, what is happening right now? I don't know what it is, but they were, it was, honestly, it was the joy of the Lord. And if you want to do it next Sunday, go for it. Some people might look at you, but that didn't sound, I, I didn't hear anybody doing the la, 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 la today. They did it today or whatever time it is in Tanzania when they met this morning. But, but pastor, they didn't have hymnals. That. that Fanny Crosby never heard of that song. They weren't singing a, a, a good old hymn of the faith. They, they weren't singing the songs that I grew up with. That didn't sound like that. What if I would have stood up and said, stop, stop doing that. Stop clapping. That's, why, why are you clapping so much? That's not reverent enough. you got to be more reverent. And, and where's your piano? Where is it? I mean, every church in America has either a piano or a keyboard or organ. It has something with keys. You guys think you can sing God-honoring music by just clapping and la-la-la-la-la? Where's your piano at? I'm not preaching in this church. What's wrong with these people? Don't even get me started on the fact that not one man in that church had, had a tie-on for their building dedication. Who even wrote that song? Isn't there a Tanzanian Hadley Hawkinsmith that can play the bass guitar or something? There's got to be somebody out there. 
The song leader never said, like, Brother Sammy, come on, church, turn up the volume. He never said any of that. They just clapped and sang and, and la, la, la. So whose worship is right? Which is more pleasing to God and more accepted by God? Should they start looking and sounding like us? Their church service looked very different than ours. Sounded very different from ours. Should we start looking and sounding like them? We, we like to do that, don't we? Of course not, but we often fight over relatively trivial things like this. We divide from good churches and good brethren because they don't do everything exactly like we do. Not talking about doctrinal compromise. I'm talking about areas of, of liberty, areas of conscience, areas of personal preference, areas of regional tradition or cultural context with where you live, areas of those things. We'll divide and, and we'll preach against and we'll talk about that church isn't really pleasing to God and they've done that and they've done this well don't those tanzanians know that church is supposed to have stained glass and organs and choir robes by the way there's nothing wrong with stained glass organs or choir robes there is something wrong when you start to associate those things or things like them with true christianity because unity in the gospel, what does it look like? It looks different all around the world, but it looks like a group of believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who are seeking to grow in his word, who love him, who express that maybe in some culturally and regionally different ways, and seeking to share the gospel with everybody that they can. And they're not compromising on truth, but it might look a little different in church in Hawaii, it might look a little different than church in New York, and church in New York might look and sound a little different than church in, in Oklahoma or Nebraska and church in Nebraska is going to look a little different than the underground church in Indonesia or China. And, and the unity, we don't need to make them do everything that we do. We want to get people to worship and know and love the God that we worship and know and love. That's unity, not uniformity. They dealt with this matter right here in the early church. They got it settled completely. It was settled completely, but yet some 2,000 years later, we're still allowing our backgrounds, our cultures, our traditions, our comfort levels, our preferences to divide us from good, godly, gospel-loving Christians and churches. God help us. Paul addressed this so beautifully all throughout Galatians, but especially in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. You have liberty in Christ. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another unity and together for all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself but if ye bite and devour one another take heed that ye be not consumed one of another if you de de demand uniformity you're going to find something wrong with that person you're going to criticize them and pretty soon the church of God is going to stop their outward focus of the gospel they're going to turn into inward cannibals eating up one another and the gospel will not go to anybody because we're so worried about uniformity instead of Christ gospel-centered unity. Unity, not uniformity. Be careful. You don't start to divide and picket one another over every difference you have. When you do, you will absolutely destroy yourselves, your church, and your witness. Number three, that's what unity looks like. Number three, what does unity bring? It's in verses 31 and 32. You see it in verse 31 when they had read, when they had read, read what, a letter that said we're all in this thing together. When they put aside their personal preferences and differences, when they read that, notice the word in verse 31, they what, church? They, they what? Rejoiced. Unity brings joy. There's nothing as joyful as a body of believers unified and focused on the right things. Not their petty differences and external, external variations, 
It brought joy. They rejoiced for what? Verse 31, they rejoiced for the consolation. What does unity bring? It brings comfort. The Gentiles knew they were loved and accepted. We're on the same team with the church at Jerusalem. We're not competing in the, in the family of God. We're not trying to do something and they're trying to do something else. We're trying to do the same thing. We're on this thing. We're in this thing together. Isn't that what Paul said? Some preach the gospel of contention. They preach it trying to hurt me. If the gospel's preached, I rejoice. We're on the same team. That's biblical unity. Joy and comfort. What does it bring? Verse 31, uh, 32, it says, they exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. It, unity brings strong churches. They were focused on building one another up, not tearing one another down. Churches with the spirit of the Pharisees, the spirit of the legalists, they're constantly finding what's wrong in everybody that doesn't look exactly like them. This church is wrong because they don't do it the way we do it. This church, that one there, and they're constantly trying to find small things. And when that happens, the church devours itself. Unity, biblical unity. Not unity at all costs. I'm not preaching unity at all costs. I'm preaching unity around the gospel. Biblical unity creates strong Christians and strong churches. I read a pastor friend of mine, Kurt Skelly, said, the healthier a church becomes, the harder it is for a critic to stay. Why? Because a healthy church is a church focused on the gospel, not, hey, did you see what so-and-so did? Oh, did you hear that? Oh, what? When a church is focused on criticizing one another, it's a very unhealthy church. But a healthy church, that's not going to last for very long because our focus is bigger than that. What are you talking about? Orange County, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And you're worried about that? You're worried about, you're worried about the, that, that church in Tanzania saying without a piano? Are you kidding me? We have three million people around us. A great majority of them do not know Christ as Savior, and you're worried that they didn't have a sound system? That's your big problem? No. Unity brings healthy churches. What does unity bring? Lastly, it brings an effective gospel witness. What were Paul and Barnabas doing in chapters 13 and 14? They were preaching the, talk to me, preaching the what? Preaching the what? The gospel. What are Paul and Barnabas? I told you they're going to go on their second journey. We're going to get there probably in two Sundays. What, what are they going to do in Acts 16? They're going to be preaching the what? Gospel. What weren't they doing in Acts 15? They weren't preaching the gospel. Now, I think it was a needed theological discussion that they had. They settled some things. But when they were worried about, when, when theological debates consumed their time, the gospel was not going forth in great, great numbers and great manner. Acts 13 and 14, gospel going forth. Acts 16, gospel going forth. Acts 15, believers fighting over theological differences. Now, I think it was a needed discussion. I'm not saying they were wrong. What I'm saying is when a church is unified around the gospel, our gospel witness is effective. Once they got this settled, they were able to, they're going to send two teams out to preach the unadulterated gospel of Christ. When the world sees a church of people with all kinds of differences, people born in different countries, people who speak different first languages, people born on different sides of the track, People with completely different interests, people from different generations, people of different genders, different stations in life. What is that? When somebody walks in here and you've got little kids and great-grandparents and you've got people that barely speak broken English and you've got people that are, have a doctorate in English and you've got all of these things, what does it show people? These people have something I need. They can get along with everybody. Why is that? Our gospel witness is more effective when the church is unified around Jesus Christ. 
Can I have Steve come on up and Terrell come on up and Faustino, would you come on up to the platform? Steve and, and Terrell, let me get Faustino, come on up. Diana, would you mind coming on up and joining me on the, on the platform here? And uh, let me see here. I'm looking around, looking around. Let me get Bob. You're sitting right there in that pew. Bob Keller, why don't you come on up? And uh, I could bring a few more, but I'm trying to wrap this thing up. But we've got, uh, let's see here. Steve, what, uh, what, what generation are you, do you know what generation you're a part of? What generation are you called? Generation X. Generation X. Bob, what's your generation called? A baby boomer. And all the baby boomers said. Any baby boomers out there excited? Terrell, what are you? Millennial. Millennial. These are what you've heard about right here. <laughs> Millennials are great. Millennials. He's got a fan club back there. And, uh, and, and we've got anybody up here you've, you've uh, ever given birth to a child? Any of you? Only one. Okay. <laughs> Only one. There's some diff- we've got different generations. We've got different genders, different life experiences. Where were you born, Faustino? Mexico. Where were you born, Terrell? South Carolina. Diana? Long Beach, the 562. Steve? Stanton. Bob? St. Louis. So we've got people from the East Coast, from the Midwest. We've got people from the West Coast, from a different country. Faustino, your first language, Spanish. That's your first language. What's your first language? And your only, what's your second language? You have a second language? English, that's it. And uh, what's your first language, Diana? English, but you also speak Spanish. We've got people from different countries. And guess what? You, you get people different generations from different regions, from different countries, different upbringings. We, would, we could go on and on. I could ask questions. We would have different personalities and different skills. And, and, and some love sports and others don't care anything about sports. And, and Diana's a, a, a great gardener. And Steve is a master electrician. And, and Bob has spent time in the service. And there's all these differences. All these differences, what do they have in common? What brings these people all here with all these differences together today? Why do these people love each other? Why do they serve together? Why do they give toward the same cause? Here's the answer. It's Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is supposed to look like. By the way, Steve loves God more, so he wore a suit and tie. (laughs) Terrell's in a t-shirt and jeans. So he doesn't love God as much, right? Be careful with that stuff. And again, I'm not saying there's not appropriateness in certain venues. To, you probably shouldn't show up to someone's wedding in a bathing suit. I'm not saying there's, there's appropriateness. I'm not saying that nothing matters. What I'm saying is, instead of focusing on everything we don't have the same, the gospel should unite. Does this look like uniformity to you? Is there, any, is there a lot of uniformity here? Other than two plaids, that's the only uniform thing I see. It's a whole lot of difference, right? We got hair, we got... Hair. <laughs> right? It, it's, it's not uniformity, but you know what this is? It's unity. And if all of these that represent all different people can work together, guess what? Orange County, I mean, Newport, Liberty Baptist Church can be an effective gospel witness in Orange County, unlike ever before. But guess what? If Bob's generation starts fighting, Terrell's generation starts fighting, Steve's generation starts getting angry about this, and Diana starts criticizing that, and Faustino, well, how come they don't do more of this? Guess what? Our gospel witness goes down the tubes because now we're just biting and devouring one another. Let you be seated. Church, let us never lose the unity that God wants us to have. 
What does it bring? It brings joy. It brings comfort, encouragement. It brings strong Christians. It brings an effective gospel witness. If we're focused on fighting each other and hurting each other, we'll never be focused on helping the hurting around us. Can I say that again? If we're focused on hurting each other, we'll never be focused on helping the hurting around us. If we're focused on dividing from other good Christians, we'll never be truly focused on bringing together those who are lost and the one who can save them, Jesus Christ. Unity, not uniformity. Stop focusing on what you don't like that is different and start focusing on the one who makes us the same in Christ. My conclusion from the Apostle Paul's opening greeting, and it's my closing here, my conclusion, my conclusion, my closing comes from the Apostle Paul's opening greeting to a troubled church, the church at Corinth. Notice what he says. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to a troubled church, that you all speak the same thing, unity. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Notice this. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. By the way, the Bible says only by pride cometh contention. There's pride in your church. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. You, you say, this is my group, and that's my, we, we look like this, and this is the one that reached me, and this is how we do, how we do ministry, and, and this is the one that, that I like. And when he says, notice what he says in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? By the way, it's Paul writing that. Did I die on the cross for you? Why are you dividing into these little subsections of Christianity with, with, with like-minded good people that love God and his word? Well, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, you were baptized in the name of Christ. Notice what he said. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say that I baptized in mine own name. It wasn't about me getting a name for myself in this corner and me building my ministry kingdom. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He said, I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I, I know not whether I baptized any other. I can't remember anybody else. For Christ sent me not to baptize. It's not about my name and, and who I helped, but to what church? To preach the gospel. This is why we're here. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Unity for the sake of the gospel is more important than uniformity of shared past experiences and personalities and preferences. Let's be a united unified church for the glory of God. Church, let's not allow doctrinal error to sneak in and let's not allow disunities to sneak in. And by the way, that's disunity within the church and it's not our job to fix any other church. Now I'm not saying if there's a church in our area that's preaching a false gospel, we can't stand up and correct and preach a true gospel. I'm not saying that. But our priority is who is our church reaching with the gospel of Christ? And what was the biggest danger to the early church in Acts 15? Doctrinal error and disunity. And Paul and James, they said, limit your liberty in some areas. Gentiles, I'm going to ask you, don't eat that around the Jews. It's going to cause a big problem in the church. Understand, there's some things that I'm okay doing, I'm not going to do, because it would hurt the unity. And the only thing that will bring true unity is the gospel. What does it look like? It looks different all over the place. Detlef, Deb, you were in that service with those Tanzanians. That, that church looked a little different. Sounded a little different. I didn't understand anything they said. But you could sense the joy of the Lord in the heart for the gospel. And, and what does unity bring? It brings a joyful church, an encouraged, comforted church, a strong church. 
and a church that's effective in reaching others with the gospel, not focused on tearing down others that have the gospel. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.